All eyes are currently on Egypt and ears on the climate crisis for COP27. This year, 120 world leaders are attending the 27th session of the Conference of the Parties, COP27, which is hosted this year in Egypt in Sharm el-Sheikh. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Think Sustainability. I'm your host, Marlene Even. In a moment's time, I will be joined by a guest panel to unpack one of the big topics happening at COP27, loss and damage. But first, earlier this morning, I got the chance to speak with one of the campaigners who is currently at COP27 in Egypt, who is currently campaigning for an advisory opinion from the highest court, the International Court of Justice, on the human rights impact of climate change. My name is Vishal Prasad. I am a campaigner with the Pacific Island Students Fighting Climate Change, uh, and I'm from Fiji. And you're currently in Egypt for COP27. We're hearing a lot of discussions happening around loss and damage amongst many, many other things. Can you tell us about what the atmosphere is like there at the moment? I think at COP27 here in Sharm el-Sheikh, we have, um, there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of energy here. Um, it really is a... Uh, an interesting um, environment here with a lot of things happening really. And um, there's a lot of optimism, there's a lot of hope, um, and there is uh, also a lot of discussion happening around the different themes, the different aspects of what people would like to see for come out of COP27. And, and I think uh, something that has been really um, heartening for us to see as part of the youth and civil society campaign coming out of the Pacific as something that's very uh, crucial and it's something that's very, um, very, uh, very close to the heart of the Pacific demands and the heart of Pacific ask uh, is the advisory opinion campaign. And I think this has seen a lot of support for the campaign, for the initiative that is currently being led by the Vanuatu government in the first few days of COP27. We've seen this through the events. And I think for us, this really uh, shows that there is a lot of uh, traction, a lot of momentum that's being built on the ground as we head to the crucial time of the advisory opinion campaign, which is the upcoming UN General Assembly vote that will be happening very soon. So all in all, it's looking very positive for the campaign. And also, I think there's a lot of positivity in the air around uh, COP27. Um, and we'll have to just wait and see how things unfold in the coming days. And can we talk more about that campaign that you mentioned there? That's campaigning for an advisory opinion from the highest court, the International Court of Justice, on the human rights impact of climate change. Can you tell us about that and what impact this advisory opinion could have? So the advisory opinion um, campaign seeks to ask the world's highest court, which is the International Court of Justice, a legal question that would help provide clarity to the whole world about uh, a certain aspect or a certain theme. And in our case, we are advocating for uh, the ICJ to clarify what are the obligations of states um, in protecting the rights of current and future generations from the adverse effects of climate change. So we're looking to bring together not just obligations under climate treaties and agreements, but also the broader range of international uh, uh, treaties, agreements, and principles, such as human rights principles, 
of course, uh, that can that that states have an obligations to uphold and how they're being impacted by by climate change. And so in doing so, what we what we what we hope to see come out of the advisory opinion is a a catalyst is a jolt in the current climate action and this current climate uh, space that we're having. And we're seeing movement, move current climate action being very slow and at times it's not moving as fast as we need to. It needs to be going. And so this is, an, this is a campaign that can bring new life really to climate action, to the UNFCCC processes and really get states to commit to meeting the obligations that they have in, in fulfilling the rights of their people and people all over the world who are suffering from the adverse effects of climate change. So there are a variety of ways an advisory opinion can help, but I think the most uh, overarching and general way to summarize its, its impact and its benefit is that it can really um, help advance and accelerate climate action by plugging in necessary gaps in, in existing international treaties and forums, um, and in doing so really help us get back on track to meeting our climate goals and, and, and uh, targets that we have set. And I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge that this campaign started in Vanuatu from law students. Were you a part of it from the beginning? That, that is correct. The campaign started from a group of law students in the Pacific who, um, who were really concerned about their futures, the future of the of future generations and those to come, um, and really about um, and, and really worried at the pace at which we were an international community were looking and addressing and, and dealing with the climate crisis. I, I wasn't part of the initial 27 law students, I joined a bit later, but um, it really was a campaign that, that began from the grassroots communities, uh, grassroots level, with uh, with young people reaching out to their leaders and and gathering support from them. It really is a, a story that that shows um, how the government of Vanuatu has listened to its people and and listened to the voices of young people. More importantly, in taking up this campaign um, now in the Pacific and then now uh, uh, in in the international community as well. And how is the advisory opinion campaign different from this broader discussion around loss and damage? Well, I think the advisory opinion campaign touches on a variety of themes and avenues and and in its at its heart, it aims to really really advance and progress um, action under the Paris Agreement and and under the existing mechanisms that we have. And so it really does seek to benefit. Um, all aspects of climate action uh, and, and, and it can have an impact on loss and damage as well. But at, at its heart, it, it tries to clarify and bring to the fore the human rights angle to, to, to climate change responses, because at, at the heart of all of this, it's about the people that are on the ground that are suffering and the rights and the privileges that they have that are being impacted impacted and affected. And so it's about addressing those, those, those challenges that exist to human rights and the threats that exist. And so while it will have a, a broad and a far-reaching uh, impact on various aspects of climate, uh, climate response, um, one major thing and one major angle that we really want to see is the bringing together of the human rights, rights perspective uh, and angle in climate responses so that we really are looking towards uh, climate responses that are more fair and have a, a more equitable angle to them.
And is the next step for this campaign to secure that majority vote at the UN General Assembly that you mentioned before? Um, we are seeing a gaining traction of this campaign. Are you confident that you will reach that majority vote? That is correct. The next step of the campaign, the first phase, concludes with the UN General Assembly vote. Um, so the government of Vanuatu um, has announced, uh, very happy that in one of the side events that I mentioned that we had um, earlier this, I think it was today, earlier today, um, that the government of Vanuatu uh, announced that um, they have recently received um, the resolution for uh, the advisory opinion has been finalized in New York by a core group of countries. So this is 18 countries that are joining in with Vanuatu in drafting this resolution. This is not just Pacific countries that are uh, Pacific Island states that are part of this, but uh, a group of countries that are really representative of the different regions of the world. So you have members that are from the Caribbean, Latin America, um, Europe, uh, the Pacific and Asia all coming together, uh, also Africa, sorry, uh, all coming together um, to really draft the resolution to, to, to show um, a wide range of support from different countries and different regions. And so that has been finalized in New York. And leading up to this, there have been a number of endorsements coming out, a number of regional endorsements coming out. And in total, it was announced that there's about 86 countries that have indicated their support for, uh, for, the, for the resolution, the UN General Assembly resolution. And this is a huge undertaking for the campaign. And it's a welcome move at the moment. And I think this, uh, this really sets the stage for us as we get into the vote where we really hope to see, um, we just need a majority vote that at, uh, that is an absolute majority would be more than 97 states. But from practice, it is a majority of however many states are in the room that on the day of voting. And so we're very confident that um, in the coming days and weeks uh, and in the lead up to the vote, we will get the majority vote in order to get this through. And so it really is looking promising at the moment. We are now almost up to the halfway point of COP27. And I, I'm very grateful that you take the time to chat with me during this very busy period. What are your hopes going forward into the rest of the COP27 discussions, bringing specifically a Pacific Island voice into these discussions? I think the Pacific has um, made its position coming into COP27 very clear on what we really want to see um, out of COP. And it really has not been much different from our asks that we have been making throughout. And this has been because we face a challenge, we face a reality that is that is in intensifying, that is increasing as the days go by. And so what we are asking, um, there have been civil society organizations and, and even um, organizations that have come up and it's and it's summarized really in the Pacific climate demands that we have come out, that has come out uh, in a way that helps to, to guide the Pacific position and to show that this is really what we are asking for, what we're looking for. And this is, these are areas in uh, relation to finance, in, in relation to adaptation, mitigation, loss and damage, as you've mentioned, uh, oceans uh, and, the, and its nexus to climate change. And so a, a variety of areas, and these are all not just broad thematic areas that we just list down for the sake of listing them, but these are really, um, aspects and, and part of our lives that are really being affected by climate change. And we really need answers and we really need some meaningful uh, solutions and traction coming out of COP meetings like this, the 27th conference. Um, and so what we really hope is that 
Um, and it's no different to the call we made at COP26. I very, very clearly remember saying this last year as well, that we really want to see some, some meaningful traction come out of this and that leaders really do listen and that they really do take to heart these calls that we are making for action and, and even the specific aspects of each of these themes that we're looking into. So it's not just broad, broad general calls for ambition for, uh, for leaders to to do something about climate change, but there's specifics that we're looking for now. And I think that makes the difference because we it, it signals to the world that we're, we're serious about all of this and, 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 and there's something specific and something um, uh, that they can do about it. And we hope to see that leaders do take this on. And so uh, I would say that is a great starting point for us. And we, we really hope to see, and we're really hoping that the demands and the asks of the Pacific is really heard at COP27. Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time to join the Think Sustainability podcast. Thank you. Before the COP27 talks even began, there was a great amount of discussion about what should be included in the agenda. World leaders debated well into the early morning about whether loss and damage should be included. Eventually, it was added to the list. For decades, climate-vulnerable countries have been advocating for high-income countries to fund the loss and damages caused by the impacts of the climate crisis. I'm joined by a guest panel to tell us about what loss and damage is and why it's such a heated discussion. Firstly, I would like to introduce you to Professor James Goodman, a professor in social and political sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to Think Sustainability. Hi. And our next guest is Dr. Melanie Pill a research fellow at the Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions at the Australian National University. Welcome, Melanie. Hello, thanks for having me. So let's jump straight in. We've been hearing a lot about loss and damage in this COP summit, but what does that actually mean when we refer to loss and damage? James, I'll go to you first. Well, it's essentially to do with the direct impacts of climate change. Um, it's distinct from uh, what has in the past been called um, adaptation to climate change, which is a broader process of um, societal change, really, to respond to the impacts. But loss and damage is, is much more about the direct human impacts, um, environmental impacts of climate change disasters, essentially, uh, if you think about the uh, terrible floods in Pakistan, which uh, put one third of the country underwater, um, that's uh, often cited now as, as a key, you know, example, um, that imposes enormous costs on society. And uh, uh, um, these have to be paid uh, somehow, otherwise people suffer. Yeah, if I might, might add to that, and I think um, some of that loss and damage can even go further than that. So I think it's important to understand that when we talk about loss and damage in the context of climate change, it's really about a concept. It's not just about loss and damage that happens from an extreme weather event um, or a natural disaster, uh, like James said, um, but it is really something that is um, attributable to, to climate change. And um, the United Nations 
framework convention on climate change or the climate change convention um, looks at different types of um, loss and damage. And we're also looking at things like sea level rise um, in the Pacific. That means an existential threat to, to their livelihoods or um, basically where they live. We're also looking at losses that are non-economic, so not just what we have to pay after an extreme weather event where we have to rebuild, but something that is you know, close to your heart. It's very subjective. And how do you put a dollar figure on that? And then we also go into things like displacement. So people have to move because of extreme weather events. Um, they have to move within their country maybe, but some of them also um, have to uh, move internationally, um, permanently or temporarily. And these are all things that count as loss and damage under the Climate Change Convention. And I suppose just to clarify, this isn't funding for preventing something from happening or or funding for adapting. It's something that is, it's inevitable. Yeah, so I think um, you, you've mentioned it um, or you said it correctly. It's not uh, any more about averting or minimizing. Um, this is sort of the technical language that's being used. Uh, it's really about addressing something that is happening. It is reality for many countries and not just developing countries. Uh, we're talking uh, about Australia as well. We're no longer immune to loss and damage from climate change. Um, so yeah, it's it's not about adapting anymore. It is going beyond what's, what we can adapt to. And getting loss and damage on the COP27 agenda was a challenge in itself. Delegates debated well into the early morning. I think it was around 1am that they were debating getting this into the agenda. Why is it such a heated topic? Uh, James, I'll go to you. The key issue here is um, responsibility. Um, So in the for many years, countries have been very concerned to ensure that there's that the uh, the rich countries are very concerned to make sure that there's no sense of um, responsibility or obligation or liability. That instead, uh, climate funding is simply a charitable gift, uh, a bit like development assistance. Uh, this is this has gone on for many years. Um, so when you bring loss and damage into the question, there's an implied uh, uh, responsibility there. And obviously, they want to try to avoid this. I mean, the extent of this is quite incredible. Uh, country, climate vulnerable countries have done a report which showed that over the last um, 20 years, about they've lost about 20% of their GDP as a result of climate change. And it's anticipated that will rise now to 20% a year for some of those countries uh, by 2030. It's in quite incredible amounts of money we're talking here. Um, so obviously, rich countries are trying to avoid any notion that there'll be an open-ended commitment required of them in terms of compensating for these losses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So compensation, I think you mentioned it correctly there, or the liability, being liable for for impacts and and damages and losses that you've caused is the real problem here. So um, there is that fear that it will open up a a can of worms, so to speak, that it it is a bottomless pit. Some have called it that, um, that this is ongoing and and ever going. So that is uh, one of the problems why compensation uh, is off the table. Uh, And we're talking 
uh, more about finance support, or in some cases, solidarity. Maybe that's another um, way you could uh, frame it in a way that it won't um, stall the, the, the conversation about loss and damage or climate finance in general. And do you believe that adding that compensation notion does stall the conversation? I think in, in many respects it does. Um, it, it definitely does um, hinder the, the talks on loss and damage itself, but then also we're really focusing on that. We're really focusing and hammering on compensation, uh, whereas we should really look into uh, mitigation and adaptation uh, and, and not necessarily uh, wanting to have compensation for loss and damages that are um, being caused. So I think we have to be uh, a little bit careful, a bit bit, bit careful yep. um, here. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I agree entirely with that with that sentiment. I, I think there is major problem uh, with uh, the assumption that somehow you can um, financialize pay pay for the impacts of climate change. Um, and there's a moral hazard there that the, certainly this has happened in the past at Copenhagen 2009, for instance, uh, where essentially these payments are used to persuade countries, developing countries, to sign up to inadequate emissions reduction efforts, right? Absolutely. It's a part of the package deal. Um, and um, in fact, Pacific Island countries have said, you know, explicitly that this is what they want is emissions reduction. <laughs> they don't want more money. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, well, they, obviously you need the, the funds in order to deal with some of the problems, but the key, but the key issue thing is when it's emissions reduction. And that, so the, the key question here is how this debate about loss and damage translates into uh, emissions reduction or translates into uh, more effective campaigning, more effective uh, uh, policy advocacy for emissions reduction. And and we are seeing that. I mean, um, so for instance, uh, there's a case, uh, several countries, many countries are now trying to get a case, the International Court of Justice, that, that actually creates um, a, a requirement or, or, or acknowledges a requirement that countries uh, have to protect, as they put it, to protect the rights of present and future generations from the harmful impacts of climate change. So in other words, this, is, this debate about loss and damage is fueling a much more important political debate about um, about uh, obligations to reduce emissions in order to address the causes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think James, you're making a really important point here. Um, it is about future generations. So this um, uh, advice that's being sought um, and led by the government of Vanuatu uh, from mm. the International Court of Justice is about protection of future generations. So it's not about historical um, compensation or compensation for um, what has happened in the past. It's really future looking. Uh, and I think that's that's where, where the difference lies, I think. And I did get the opportunity to speak with one of the campaigners uh, who is part of that um, International Court of Justice um, campaign with Vishal Prasad from Pacific Islands Student Fighting Climate Change. Now, getting back to the loss and damage, when that was put forward in the agenda for COP27, they also tried to put forward those two words of liability and compensation. And ultimately, those two words were not included. Loss and damage was, liability, compensation was not. And it seems like there is, to oversimplify it probably, but it seems like many countries agree that there does need to be this fund. 
But when these words of compensation come up, that's when it gets a bit tricky and that's when it becomes a bit heated. So so moving forward, is it important to include those words or or to to move forward, as you said, and just look at climate finance rather? So I might just jump in here because I did quite a bit of research during my PhD uh, and talked to uh, stakeholders and um, representatives, global representatives uh, working on loss and damage. And um, when you go into um, policymakers, talk to policymakers, or you talk to community members, I did that um, in the Caribbean, for example, uh, talk to uh, fisher folk and farmers um, and um, uh, public servants working on loss and damage over there, uh, it is really not necessarily desired. So compensation, uh, when you look into uh, people that are affected, don't necessarily believe that compensation is something that is suitable um, or uh, appropriate. So just a blank check for something that you've lost is not solving the problem. So maybe we have to look into what's happening on the ground and what is important for the people rather than wanting to have compensation and liability on the agenda for every single COP. Um, I do believe, though, that we need to look at finance, and I do believe that we need to look at making resources and financial um, resources available, Um, but they need to flow into the communities. They need to help the people on the ground. Um, So I think that's really important to consider here. The question is, do we need to have that wording of compensation and liability? Because it also creates a lot of legal issues. So there would have to be so many things in place in order to to actually get that compensation if it was um, established globally. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, point. There is that, uh, I think, very important uh, problem of... um, of um, this notion that somehow money can meaningfully compensate for the loss of livelihood, uh, for the loss of life, the loss of living environments uh, on the scale we're talking about. This is not just, you know, these are not one-off events. These are, as we know, obviously, uh, with the floods and fires and so on in Australia, these are recurring, recurring events and intensifying events um, the guts of this in that respect is, is not so much this sort of, for, for me, I don't think it, it's not around this question of compensation. It's actually around the extent to which this debate is actually forcing a reckoning with that mm. um, and, uh, and forcing a politicization of these climate events uh, in, in the sense of identifying who is responsible for them. Because uh, it's not the people who in large part, who affected 99% of climate um, uh, change impacts are being, are being felt by those who have no, by, by those, by low income groups, essentially. So politicizing that through this language of compensation and reparation, I think is really important. I, I mean, so these aren't, nat- these aren't natural events. These are human made events. And it's very important to point the finger at what's causing, who are causing these events, um, be that states, be that fossil fuel corporations, to politicize these events. I think that, and if this language does that, then more 
<laughs> then bring it on, you know? Because if you don't, it then just becomes a, a, a technical exercise in, you know, concrete, <laughs> building the walls and such, moving villages and so on. I mean, really, this is, this is much, this really needs, and that, that's what really needs to happen here in my view. And this has been going for some, I don't know, we can talk about this for some time, but it has been going, for, this debate, this debate about reparations has been going way back when they started creating climate funds. And, and Western governments just say, oh, well, we'll just use our development aid for that. <laughs> and, and, and Southern countries said, no, no, this, this is not about development. This is about responsibility. This has to be additional. These funds have to be additional. We can't just shift funds over from development assistance into climate. And that, so that goes back to the early 2000s. So it is a very it's a very important debate in the wider political sense of responsibility, uh, blame, and so on for what is happening here. And I guess that brings the big question of who pays for the loss and damage caused by climate change. Is it the high income industrialized countries? Is it the private sector? Is it both? Uh, the UN um, Antonio Guterres uh, has asked governments to tax the profits of fossil fuel companies to be used on loss and damage caused by the climate crisis and also to be redirected to people struggling with the costs of food and, and energy. Do you think we'll see that happen? And, and I guess that's the too loaded question of do you think we'll see that happen and then who should be paying? I'll go to you first, Melanie. Yeah, I would I would love to see um, the private sector um, being more on board and being held more responsible. Um, and I think, again, from research, um, it comes through that there is that uh, desire for private, um, that there should be taxes uh, and consequences for, for private entities uh, to pay uh, in, into a fund or um, to compensate for the loss and damage. Um, caused in in um, poorer nations. So uh, yeah, I would I would like to see that. But the question is, how would we do that? Um, how can we make private uh, companies pay for it? And that has been a discussion that has been on the table for a long, long time. Uh, and that governments have to do that um, nationally. Um, it would be very hard to do that on a global scale. Yes, and essentially, it's a global version of a carbon tax. Um, the companies pay for their emissions um, and that gets collected at an international level in order to redistribute the funds. I, I think it's a very productive discussion because it shifts uh, the focus from states to corporates. And that's happened recently, particularly only in the last 15 years, it's quite incredible actually. Previously, all the debate was about state responsibility and with some very good research was done in the mid 2000s and onwards around fossil fuel corporates and the extent to which they produce the problem. This question has come up about, uh, as you say, private sector responsibilities. Mm. And, uh, and I think that's enormously productive. This question of responsibility really does start to um, generate some very important policy debate about um, exactly what mechanisms are needed beyond simply uh, one state paying another state a certain amount of money. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, just to add to that, it would actually be easier to... Um, calculate how much fossil fuel companies, for example, have emitted, whereas on a country basis, that is actually really hard. And uh, also a problem is that, and that's 
goes again into compensation and, and suing someone for compensation. A country is a collective of people. So you're basically suing, um, suing billions of people within the country uh, for compensation claims, whereas with private companies, it would be uh, able to figure out how much they have emitted over the last 20 years, knowing uh, that uh, their emissions cause um, climate change and, and loss and damage. So I think that's a, another important um, point to make here. And I also wanted to add that um, some also argue, and that's a, also a legitimate question, if we do get private companies to pay one way or the other with the global carbon tax or whether that's going to be on a national level, whatever it's going to look like, should we then not use that money for mitigation? Should we then not use that for mitigation or adaptation instead of loss and damage? Um, because if we say we use that money for loss and damage, we've almost given up. So that's that's another question to ask. Should we mitigate so that loss and damage um, doesn't happen in the first place and we stick or are maybe able to stick to our 1.5 degree temperature target, um, which would then uh, basically minimize uh, loss and damage um, in the first place. So that that's another question to ask. So we might have the funds from the private sector, but then... How are we going to distribute it and who's going to get the money and who's going to come first, who's more vulnerable? So, um, yeah, it opens up another a whole other debate as well. Big, big moral questions. Yes, absolutely. And I guess you mentioned the Pakistan flood, um, but lots of countries are in need of this funding now. They're recovering now. They need the money now. So... When we're having these discussions at COP27, how do we ensure that this funding happens very quickly? But also, you've just mentioned there are so many things that we have to discuss and so many topics that we have to discuss, which could take years potentially, but we need the funding now. So how do we balance the two, ensuring the funding comes through quickly, but also effectively? Yeah, I think that's that's a really good question. And I think this is something we will um, see being discussed at COP27, um, probably as we speak. Uh, if there is uh, a fund, we all know that processes within the United Nations, whether it's the Climate Change Convention or any anywhere else, they, they take long. So uh, the question is whether the, the fund, the discussion on the fund um, is a tool to get um, financial assistance to people on the ground, and I really stress this here, needs to trickle into the communities, uh, people on the ground that are affected, um, whether that is actually a quick solution uh, or whether we need to say, well, we are providing financial assistance as uh, rich nations and a part of that or on top of that uh, we'll put some money aside for loss and damage maybe that is uh, a discussion that we could have in the meantime and there are countries uh, that have pledged uh, last year um, Scotland pledged uh, money for loss and damage um, New Zealand came uh, to the table and said well we are going to contribute something that is really just loss and damage so we we see a little bit of momentum here and we see a little bit from some developed countries or rich nations that there is um, some sort of willingness to move. But again, if we go into that compensation uh, debate, then, then that's a problem and that might stall um, the conversation uh, on finance. So maybe it is 
an interim solution, but if we wait for a fund or finance, finance mechanism, finance, financial um, facility, it might actually, like you said, not be fast enough for countries on the ground. Um, so maybe we need some sort of balancing here. We are almost at halfway point of COP27, so there's no doubt going to be lots more discussions on this topic of loss and damage. What are you hoping will come out from these COP27 talks about loss and damage? Uh, James, I'll go to you. <laughs> uh, wow. Um, I, I'd hope, uh, if not at this COP or subsequent ones, that the question of loss and damage will be directly linked government's commitments on emissions reduction uh, and that there'd be, that there'd be a correlation drawn between the two. You know, the actual impacts uh, correlate directly to the emissions that are being produced and, uh, and that that then produce you know, much more meaningful commitments from governments. Um, uh, that's, a, that's a hope <laughs> that's a, and, that's, and that's, what I, uh, that's what I see as a, way, as a way forward. And in fact, that's come from climate vulnerable countries, it comes from Pacific Island Forum, it comes from all the countries that are affected by climate change. That's what they say. We want um, meaningful reductions in, uh, in emissions. It, I, I think it's, it's, just to bring it home, you know, in terms of Australia, Australia's still not supporting uh, Pacific Island efforts to, the Vanuatu's efforts at the International Court of Justice in terms of um, uh, states' responsibilities, um, uh, to, to act to protect future generations from the impacts of climate change. It's still not supporting that. It's still insisting, despite Pacific Island saying, you know, please stop digging up coal, please stop, you know, pumping out the gas. It's still saying, no, 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 we're going to carry on. Pump, the pump, the pump it up, dig it up, ship it out, you know, export, uh, as if it's not affecting anyone. So really, um, that's what needs to happen is, is, is these, this, this loss and damage is to connect the dots, not to separate off into some technical debate about, about a fund and how it can or should be established. I think really this has to be seen as be read in terms and, and, and acted on as part of um, you know, the effort to, to reduce emissions and address this crisis at court. Yeah. And I'll just quickly interject. I know that Australia has... Um, supported the advisory opinion they've they've called out and supported it but they haven't put their name down as that in a group mm. of i think 18 or 19 countries that's right yeah. and and melanie what are your hopes for the rest of the what what comes out of these cop 27 talks well i'm going to um echo a little bit what james has said there as well um and one of the words that really um uh, struck um or stood out there was meaningful meaningful um, emission re emissions reductions. Um, sometimes some people have claimed that the COP is basically a negotiation of how much everybody's still allowed to emit, rather uh, about how much is is each of us um, going to reduce our emissions. And I think this is a really important point: meaningful reduction. Um, and what are we going to put into place in our own backyards, like Australia, in Europe, in the US, um, to reduce those um, emissions? Um, so that's something really important in order to completely avoid loss and damage. And the existential threat, it's really existential uh, for some countries um, that, that these impacts to just avoid that completely. So I think this is something I would like to see um, 
happening uh, at COP. Um, I also like to see action on loss and damage because there are unavoidable impacts. Um, we will see that in the future. And like I said, that will also spill uh, over to developed countries if we don't reduce our emissions. Um, so I would like to see more action on loss and damage in a way forward um, that is beneficial, again, to um, communities, people on the ground. So that's what I would like to see rather than a um, only a high-level discussion um, on what's going to happen. It needs to uh, be accessible um, to people on the ground. Thank you both so much for joining this special edition of Think Sustainability podcast. Thanks for having us, Malie. Thanks so much. You've heard from Professor James Goodman, a professor in social and political sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney, and Dr. Melanie Pill, a research fellow at the Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions at the Australian National University. And thank you for listening to this special Think Sustainability discussion for COP27 about loss and damage. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for your company.